0: Hello, and thank you for joining us again at the AUA University Podcast. Today, we're dipping into the archives of the AUA 2017 Annual Meeting in Boston, and beginning a series in which we will present to you the take-home messages. Today's series will include three different take-home messages, prostate cancer, basic science research, and trauma and reconstruction. We would like to begin with the take-home messages on prostate cancer. I turn you over to Dr. Kirsten Lynn Green.
1: I just wanna say good afternoon and thank you for the honor of being able to present the take-home messages for prostate cancer, Dr. Thrasher, Dr. Manga. I have no disclosures. So there were over 900 abstracts on prostate cancer this year. I can imagine a lot of the people in the audience were not able to see every single one. So I am going to highlight The definition of grade group. I'm going to go over the trends in screening, detection, surgery, highlight a little bit of the um, debate on transrectal versus transperineal biopsy. There's some very exciting things going on in genetic markers and precision medicine, and then bring it all home with the pivot trial, big trial data, breaking news, best of, and the newly released localized prostate cancer guidelines. So to kick it off, Grade group, just a brief definition, this is important for two reasons. First, it's in the localized prostate cancer guidelines, and it breaks out Gleason score into grade group. The second reason, as I'm sure many people in this room have realized, is that it's being adopted more and more in research, and it's actually predictive of oncologic outcomes after radical prostatectomy. As last year, this year there was a lot of debate about the impact of the USPSTF screening recommendations on outcomes in prostate cancer. This group found an increase in high-grade disease, there's been a decrease in the diagnosis of low-risk disease, and about a 3% increase in metastasis across multiple abstracts presented. Moving on to serum and tissue markers, as well as urinary markers, I think one of the best talks I heard this year was at the SUO, Dr. Stacy Loeb really gave a great summary and made sense of how do we use these markers when we screen for prostate cancer. So looking at 4K score and PHI, the two most widely available, I'm gonna highlight two different abstracts from this AUA. One is looking at the use of 4K score and when do you integrate MRI. So first, starting off with 4K, potentially skipping biopsy entirely if it's, sorry, skipping biopsy entirely if it's low, moving directly to biopsy if it's high, and integrating MRI as sort of a decision-making tool. Another group looked at PCA3 instead and took it head-to-head against MRI, and then either started with PCA3, followed up by MRI to avoid 76% of biopsies, but miss about half of high grade, or sequence it the opposite way, starting with MRI and then using PCA3 to avoid about a third of biopsies, but only miss 5% high grades. So this suggests the following schema. You're looking at the blood and urine markers conventionally available, as well as the ones presented this year with tremendous promise, isoPSA, calicrine, oncosomes, and the androgen receptor. Potentially, if you have high-quality, multi-parametric MRI available, you could start with that, If not, go directly to one of these markers. If you have the MRI, start with your MRI, use a pi 3 cutoff, and then use a marker as a determinant for equivocal, or go directly to targeted biopsy and skip the marker if the MRI is over pi 3 MRI fusion biopsy had over 200 abstracts presented this year at the AUA. So what I did was pull together data from big trials to get some big take-home messages. First, there's no difference in visual estimation or what we call cognitive fusion versus fusion uh, software-based technology. Second, when you compare multi-parametric MRI fusion, it does better at overall detection compared to trust biopsy alone, but about equal identification of high-risk disease. And then lastly, as a cutoff, the Pyrads 3 and above appears to have significant association with detection of cancer on biopsy, both from a large group in the UK as well as Australia. There was a debate about transperineal versus transrectal biopsy approaches. Both of these can be done with MRI fusion, cognitive, or software. A lower infection rate was seen with transperineal biopsy, but with this is a caveat that this requires anesthesia and there's an impact on the health system as well as costs. Next, data from some big trials, ERSPT Protect and Pivot, the PROTECT trial once again showed no difference in metastases and death after 15 years of follow up. The ERSPT versus PROTECT trial, protected by Dr. Dross, showed low and intermediate risk prostate cancer patients had no difference in overall survival when you compare active treatment, which is surgery or radiation, versus active monitoring. And the PIVIT trial presented its 20 year data comparing surgery and observation and showing no decrease in prostate cancer overall mortality and no decrease. In prostate cancer survival. So moving on to surgery, this was a hot topic. There were a lot of exciting trends. One was that the technique, whether you do it open or robotic, is not as important as experience and expertise. The second was crowdsourcing, which actually can identify expertise. Open and robotic approaches were equivalent in outcomes and quality of life, but appeared to be better than pure laparoscopic. And then two areas to be excited about for the future. One was fluorescent antibody-labeled lymph nodes for identification of cancer and the RETSIA-sparing approach. So moving on, just a few quick slides about data on these. This group looked at the complication rates, which were strongly associated with surgeon experience. The music group from Michigan looked at surgeon variation with the highest-performing surgeons actually having the best outcomes. Uh, and this actually did not fall out when you adjust for risk, so they still had the best outcomes. This group looked at laparoscopic versus robotic prostatectomy and found better functional results with robotic approach. This is the PROS-QA trial that looked at open versus robotic and found no difference in health-related quality of life changes over time. However, they did see decrease in blood loss, length of stay and complications with a robotic approach. So once again, the technique appears equivalent and the surgeon is what matters. This is one of the best abstracts on crowdsourcing. Was able to identify top performing surgeons and those top performing surgeons actually had lower readmission, lower EBL, lower indwelling catheter replacement. Shifting gears a little bit to focal therapy, which is a strong emerging technology. This is the best abstract that showed you need an 11-millimeter margin for ideal treatment. Now, switching a little bit to some of the really exciting genetic and um, precision medicine abstracts, this is a late-breaking abstract that showed there was no difference, no racial disparity, in terms of genetic variability in prostate cancer, and that significant interinstitutional variations potentially were the reason for racial disparity seen in other trials. Having said that, when you look at primary and metastatic prostate cancer, many, many abstracts found that BRCA2 is strongly associated with these, and with this best abstract, these were also seen in low-risk cancer cases as well. So these germline DNA mismatch repair genes are an important emerging um, thing to follow. This is the Precision Medicine Best Abstract, which found that patient-derived samples were able to be successfully cultured in vitro. You're talking about precision medicine and individualized care. This is powerful stuff for men with biochemical recurrence and the future of prostate cancer treatment. This, I think, is an important abstract to spend just a moment on. This was data from the Aqua registry, and it shows how we treat our men with prostate cancer in the United States. I think take a look down here. This is stratified by the CAPRA risk score, and this shows how we treat very low-risk men. The reason I'm calling this out is because now I'm going to present the localized prostate cancer guidelines, and if you look at this, you see about 60% of low-risk men are still getting treated, and if we follow our guidelines, that's all about to change. So these are the localized prostate cancer guidelines from the AUA. It's a risk stratification using grade groups, which is why I started out with that as the definition. If you look at very low-risk and low-risk... For very low-risk men, there's a strong recommendation, we should be doing active surveillance for these men. For low-risk men, again, a moderate recommendation for active surveillance, selective radical prostatectomy or radiotherapy uh, in higher-risk men, and no evidence to support focal therapy. Looking at the intermediate risk group, and I think this was something that's very different. It was broken into favorable and unfavorable risk. For both of these risk categories, we should be offering them either radical prostatectomy or radiation with ADT. There's a conditional recommendation for active surveillance in the favorable intermediate risk group. And once again, no evidence to support HIFU or local ablative therapy. The high-risk patients, this excluded anyone T3, T4, we should be staging them with CT, MRI, or bone scan. We should be offering them radical prostatectomy or radiotherapy with ADT as a standard treatment. We should not be doing active surveillance. We should not be doing focal therapy or primary ADT on these patients. And then bringing it back to the genetics I had highlighted, this is the first time the guidelines have, for prostate cancer, have included considering a referral for genetic counseling for patients with high-risk disease, those who have BRCA2, uh, for those of you who saw the plenary, you know this ended with a think-pink moment, so think about screening but not only the men but their families as well. And I just want to say thank you once again for the honor of presenting this. Thank you to the scientists for some breathtaking work this year and providing hope to not only patients but to urologists for new treatment options. Thank you.
0: We would like to continue with the take-home messages on basic sciences. I will now turn you over to Jennifer Bishop.
2: So I'd like to thank the organizers for the opportunity to present the take-home messages for basic science, Dr. Thrasher, Dr. Monga, I appreciate this. So there were over 22 basic research sessions at the meeting, not including an all-day basic science symposium on Friday and a number of other research offerings. And these sessions comprised over 400 abstracts covering a wide range of topics, including GU cancers, physiology, pharmacology, and lower urinary tract dysfunction, BPH, stone disease, infertility, sexual function and dysfunction, and a number of other topics. So as you can imagine, given the diversity of research presented, it's rather challenging to summarize take-home messages in the time allotted. But what I've done is identify a number of key themes that I think can uh, span the range of urologic disease. So the hot topics that are uh, emerging and continuing from previous years, uh, there's intense focus on molecular correlates of disease, both as biomarkers and in terms of their functional and clinical implications. There was uh, very elegant research presented on novel model systems, both to model disease to understand etiology and to identify new therapeutic strategies. And uh, there is a continuing interest in the contribution of the microenvironment to disease progression, both at the level of cell and tissue interactions, but also in terms of subcellular elements, including cell-free DNA and extracellular vesicles. So what I'm going to do in the uh, next few slides is just present some examples of research that I felt exemplified one or more of these key themes. So in terms of molecular subtypes of disease, there was elegant research presented by Miller and colleagues from Los Angeles in which they described intrinsic prostate cancer subtypes determined in diagnostic prostate biopsies. So using a 37-gene signature that had previously identified three prostate cancer subtypes of differing biology, this was applied to two additional independent prostate cancer cohorts And the signature was able to cluster the new samples appropriately with the identified subtypes. And this suggested potential prognostic utility of this 37 gene signature in a treatment naive biopsy. Another study from the West Coast by Jameson et al. from San Diego described a genomic analysis of a longitudinal series of surgical prostate cancer bone metastases and the establishment of xenografts from the same patient. So essentially, this group was able to follow tumor recurrence in situ, and this is providing unique insights into the biology of bone metastasis. Furthermore, patient-derived xenografts, both from the primary and metastatic lesions, are being used to interrogate the biology underlying the development of resistance and recurrence, and also to suggest alternative therapeutic approaches. Combining uh, subtyping with a novel model system, the group from London, Ontario, headed up by Lawerson et al., described uh, the development of a chorioallantoic membrane graft assay in which primary tumors and metastases from renal cell carcinomas could be engrafted within a short amount of time, namely two days. This assay provided a readout of drug resistance based on phenotype that was not evident from uh, analysis of DNA or RNA sequencing data. And so this system can be used rapidly to guide drug selection in the patient from whom the tumors were obtained. Another elegant study described the use of patient-derived xenografts of upper tract urothelial carcinoma, And uh, Murray and colleagues from Columbia in Missouri described a cohort of stable, patient-derived xenograft models and cell lines for UTUC that maintain the genetic characteristics of the primary tumor. And again, availability of these stable resources has tremendous utility for drug screening for personalized medicine approaches. In recent years, there's been um, tremendous interest in the... Uh, establishment and identification of intrinsic subtypes of bladder cancer in work uh, coming out of a number of groups. And this has now moved on to uh, the realm of functional and clinical implications. So in particular, tumors with a basal phenotype in the absence of treatment are high risk and aggressive. However, they do have a favorable response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy leading to increased overall survival. And these findings uh, have been shown by a number of groups, including Siler and colleagues in Vancouver and Tregnago and colleagues in Baltimore. And so this is a very nice example of translating basic biology into clinical and functional implications. This has also been extended to the realm of immunotherapy, a paper by Glazer and colleagues from Chicago, Illinois, Demonstrated that the immune co stimulatory molecule B7H4 has been associated with poor survival in urothelial carcinoma. And specifically, this uh, molecule is highly expressed in the luminal subtype of bladder cancer, unlike PDL1, which is highly expressed in the basal subtype of bladder cancer. And the implications of these findings are that. B7H4 may be a promising target for immunotherapy, particularly in patients who do not respond to pdl one treatment. The use of molecular subtyping is not restricted to malignant disease, and there were a number of papers from the group in Bern in Switzerland describing microRNA subtypes in benign disease, and particularly in the context of patients with bladder outlet obstruction. They analyzed bladder biopsies from urodynamically characterized patients with obstruction and were able to define a number of down-regulated microRNA clusters. The implications of these studies are that functional characterization of these clusters can provide insights into mRNAs that are targeted and that may contribute to loss of bladder function in such patients. Similarly, a study of a specific microRNA 132 was shown to uh, induce bladder uh, overactivity and hypertrophy following overexpression in a rodent model, and uh, the enhanced muscle contractility and non-voiding contractions in systemetrograms were consistent with the ability of the microRNA132 to target expression of acetylcholinesterase and uh, promote the upregulation of molecules associated with overactivity. So these studies uh, highlight the utility of specific microRNAs as biomarkers and also as determinants of disease. Some other uh, molecular analyses identified estrogen receptor gene networks in the context of BPH. Using RNA-seq analysis of cells treated with a range of CERMS, identified differentially regulated genes depending on the pattern of ER activation, And again, these genes and associated networks may provide novel biomarkers for the study of BPH and associated lower urinary tract symptoms. Another study in the context of BPH characterized the periprostatic fat in uh, obese and lean patients and demonstrated that the PPF from obese patients had increased thickness and uh, increasing inflammatory infiltrates, and that these infiltrates can elaborate pro-inflammatory pro-inflammatory cytokines that may contribute to tissue remodeling. In terms of the microenvironment, uh, there were uh, a number of very interesting studies on the role of extracellular vesicles elaborated by a variety of cells in the microenvironment. A study from the group in Los Angeles demonstrated that extracellular vesicles from amniotic fluid-derived stem cells played an important role in glomerular homeostasis, And in particular, extracellular vesicles were able to attenuate elevated VEGF signaling in a mouse model of Alpert syndrome and to attenuate the pathologic sequela in that disease. In the context of stone disease, uh, patients with calcium stones and Randall's plaque excrete distinct populations of microRNA-containing vesicles, Stone formers and those with high amounts of Randall's plaque excrete distinct populations of microRNAs within urinary extracellular vesicles. And again, these um, microRNAs are contributing not only to disease pathogenesis, but may serve as valuable biomarkers. And in the last two uh, posters and papers I'm going to highlight, I wanted to uh, summarize work from Minagawa and colleagues in Japan, on a biofabricated bone marrow-derived cell patch, this is able to restore function of uh, bladder injury in a rat model. And then the last slide is really, I think this is the future, optogenetic modulation of bladder function by Michel and colleagues in St. Louis, Missouri. And they uh, characterized uh, optogenetics as a strategy to evoke controlled regulation of populations of bladder sensory fibers and to lead to better understanding of their role in bladder function and disease. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: And in conclusion, we will turn to the take-home messages on trauma and reconstruction. These are presented by Laura S. Leedy.
3: Good afternoon. Welcome. I'll be presenting the take-home messages for trauma and reconstruction. There were five podium sessions, three poster sessions, and two video sessions that will be included, as well as uh, there was a very interesting plenary primetime discussion yesterday on several different things, including the update from the GURS Society as well as anterior urethral stricture repair, panurethral urethral stricture uh, disease, and artificial urinary sphincter malfunction. There's also a panel on, tra- on urologic trauma during the Next Frontiers plenary session this morning. Um, there were several themes that came out of the different abstract sessions uh, that are highlighted above. One was the increasing use of robotics in the field of urinary reconstruction, as well as uh, the effect of radiotherapy on uh, the job that reconstructive urologists have. Also, several centers were looking at trying to predict who will fail urethral reconstruction using different models. I'm now gonna present a, a series of different abstracts from these different sessions. This uh, was from a moderated poster session looking at a multi-institutional experience with robotic ureteroplasty using buccal mucosa graft. They had 25 patients who had undergone this technique with a median stricture length of 4 centimeters. These were not amenable to uretero-ureterostomy, and all were located in the proximal or mid ureter. They had a follow-up of 17 months and a 92% success rate. This was a study looking at the potential association between low testosterone and anterior urethral stricture disease. In this series, they did exclude patients who'd had radiotherapy or trauma. And in their center, they do encourage all men who present with urethral stricture disease to obtain testosterone levels. They did in their uh, uh, database identify 67 men who had preoperative testosterone values drawn and compared them to age max controls in the NHANES database and found that 52% of patients with urethral stricture disease had low testosterone versus 28% in the the NHANES database, Uh, and this was more profound in the younger patients. This was an interesting uh, presentation from the group out of Chicago looking at uh, peptides that had anti-inflammatory, uh, nanofibers, excuse me, that had anti-inflammatory peptides impregnated into them and then used in a rat uh, model urethro- substitution urethroplasty. Um, and they found that there, were, there was improved wound healing in the uh, the Rat patients who underwent the uh, who had the anti-inflammatory peptides. So we'll look forward to more information uh, from them in years to come. I'm going to present two different abstracts that were presented in two different podium sessions from this group out of the UK, highlighting the effects of radiotherapy in. in trauma and reconstruction. This one was 42 patients with a mean age of 63 years with refractory bladder neck contractures. Uh, Ten of the patients had prior radiotherapy. They did highlight the importance of looking at the bladder function of these patients and indicated these were highly selected patients with radiotherapy, all with greater than 200 cc bladder capacities and relatively normal urodynamic parameters. Uh, They used a transperineal approach in all of them, and all patients were counseled that they would have um, artificial urinary sphincter placed in a delayed fashion. They had 97% success rate in the post-surgical patients, the non-radiated patients, and 70% success in the radiated patients. However, they did have uh, two of those patients who d- uh, developed a urosimphaceal fistula and uh, were worse off, they felt were worse off after the surgery. And this highlights careful selection as needed before reconstruction in these patients. They went on at a later time to present uh, the effects of radiotherapy on the outcome of rectourethral fistula repair. And they found that in patients without radiation, 91% were able to have a a transperineal approach. Versus the radiotherapy group, only 31% were able to have uh, a transperineal approach. The other 69% had to have an abdominal and perineal approach. Um, They did have good success rates in both groups. This was an interesting modification of the transcorporal artificial urinary sphincter placement out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And uh, they described uh, creating the the known uh, incisions in the corporal bodies, but then lifting flaps of the tunica albigenia to wrap around the bulbar urethra in in a loose and gentle fashion prior to placing the artificial sphincter. This group had 11 patients who had undergone this technique. Seven of them had had radiotherapy, uh, and some of those patients had also had a urethroplasty, whereas four of them had had uh, a prior erosion, so a high risk group for artificial urinary sphincter placement. The cuffs used were five, five and a half, or six centimeters. The group did have a 27% erosion rate. Uh, However, uh, in the patients who had successful placement, they uh, were dry or one pad a day. Of note, they do close the corporal body defects using uh, abdominal aponeurosis graft that they harvested during the placement of the reservoir. This this is part of the TURNS group, uh, six uh, fellowship-trained reconstructive surgeons who are attempting to create a predictive model of urethroplasty success or failure using uh, over 500 consecutive EPA urethroplasties and over 700 consecutive substitution urethroplasties. And they found moderate sensitivity and specificity in their predictive model uh, and planned to increase their database to hopefully improve their ability to predict success and failure in urethroplasty. This was a comparison of outcomes of ulnar and radial free flaps out of the group in Norfolk, uh, looking at uh, whether they had uh, fistula stricture or stricture uh, in their grafts or uh, complete failure of the graft. And they did find a difference between the ulnar and radial flaps in terms of the rate of stricture formation with lower stricture formation in the ulnar flap group. They plan to look further at the morbidity of the donor sites. This uh, is looking at an interesting study actually out of Japan that a rare group of people who have... um, preoperative imaging prior to endoscopic therapy for their urethral stricture and then imaging prior to undergoing urethroplasty. And they did find increasing complexity of the urethral stricture uh, when the patients underwent DVIU or multiple endoscopic therapies or uh, a urethral stent placement. Uh, And that in several patients, this increased the complexity of the urethroplasty that was needed from what was predicted on their initial imaging. This was a very nice three-part study uh, done in, uh, in, from the group from Ireland. Uh, they were looking at traumatic catheterization in an attempt to prevent further urethral injury and the need for urethral stricture repair. Uh, and they first looked at, at the rate this was occurring in their center and found it to be 6.7 per thousand catheters placed. And they found uh, that this uh, increased the cost of the hospital stay for these patients and also um, that it uh, it led to clavian class uh, grade 2 or greater complications. They went, then went on to look at the pressure required to rupture the urethra in porcine and cadaveric models and found 150 kilopascals of pressure or a greater than 40% increase in the urethral diameter uh, led to rupture. And then uh, they created a safety valve that could be placed on the syringe that's inflating the balloon that would uh, stop the, the inflation at greater than 150 kilopascals. They've now used this in hundred patients and so far have not had any urethral injuries. Uh, in, on further questioning, they did demonstrate they did say the device cost about two dollars uh, to make and can be either sterilized or used uh, in a d- disposable fashion. These are two different uh, videos that are, are worth viewing. One is a radial free arm flap substitution urethroplasty for treatment for a long uh, urethral defect out of Seattle, Washington. Also, uh, the reconstruction of two uh, concurrent ipsilateral ureteral strictures that were repaired in, with a robotic technique using uh, an appendiceal onlay, and the more distal using a non transecting ureteral reimplantation. Thank you so much, and safe travels home.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will continue with this series. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes and Android and at university.auanet.org.